welcome back to State of Mind with me, Grace Kingswell. Today's guest is someone I've been wanting to talk to for ages. She's always at the top of my Instagram stories and I devour everything she puts online. Her name is Imogen Ivy and she's a creative director, photographer and videographer from Australia living in London. What drew me to Imogen to begin with was her dancing, her joyful, uninhibited, dancing in the middle of the street in London type of dancing. The kind that lifts your soul and makes you smile ridiculously at your phone screen, whilst also simultaneously thinking, gosh, I wish I could move my body like that. As the months passed, I started to get fragments of a health battle via Imogen's Instagram. She speaks a lot about movement as a privilege and having had that privilege taken away from her before. She's eloquent and well-versed in a way that only one with personal experience could be on the topics of mental health and body neutrality too. I was really intrigued. What follows in this episode is an utterly heartbreaking in places and raw account of her journey with mental health that went from being probably quite a standard issue to a medically induced man-made shit show. Thank you to Imogen for sharing her incredible story with us and providing lots of humour and important messages along the way. You can find her on Instagram at Imogen, F-K-I-N-G, Ivy. All right, let's get into the episode. And we're live. Welcome to the podcast, Imogen Ivy. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. Um, I actually just, when I was thinking about like who I wanted to have on this podcast for this season, um, and I was like, definitely Imogen. And then I sat down to write some questions like, I don't actually know what I want to ask you. It's more of a like, I just want to talk. I want a fangirl and I want to talk to you. Let's, I want everyone to hear it. Let's just chit chat. <laughs> this is my favorite way to do this. Let's just have a good old chin wagon. <laughs> so good. Um, okay. I have to ask you to begin with though, what has 2020 taught you so far? 2020 has taught me to act my age. You know, like I've had an Ooh. adult head cap on for so many years since I was like 15. Um, I'm 23 now. I was 22 when COVID mm-hmm. hit. And I just realized, I was like, I I need to act 22. You know, I need to go do sports again and have, you know, um, be more childlike in a way. Like, don't get me wrong, I'm fun. I've always been fun. But for me, it was COVID slowed me down and I actually did things that I haven't done for years, um, which, you know, it's it's basically found my more inner child. I started doing things that I did as a child, um, you know, more sports, uh, dancing, you know, because I had time to do it. Um, mm. And I actually, yeah, it was a great little reset. So, yeah, definitely um, acting my age a bit more. Yeah, nice. Yeah. That's uh, probably the most interesting answer I've had so far. Most people have been like, <laughs> 2020 has taught me to wash my hands or to not plan into the future or all these really valid points. Um, Okay, so let's talk about pre-COVID. Tell us a little bit about you and what you do. Do. So I, my name is Imogen Ivy, (laughs) Australian woman, and I'm a creative director. So before COVID, um, so I moved to London three weeks before COVID. And um, no, yeah, really? Yeah, I moved. Uh, I got here fresh. I moved on Valentine's Day. Didn't even know it was oh Valentine's gosh, you... Day. <laughs> Poor girl. Um, and then within three weeks, yeah, all locked up. And um, because my sister is uh, classified high risk, 
um, when the talk of COVID came out, we just went straight into self-isolation before self-isolation or lockdown was a thing, right? So I was like weeks doing it, think like weeks self-isolating, thinking this thing would go away in a few weeks. Mm-hmm. So I was actually doing lockdown before <laughs> lockdown. Um, anyway, so in Australia, uh, creative director, I had my own studio. I did freelance photography, videography, editing, um, and web design. Um, I did nude photography. So I, I somehow made this business of um, photographing anyone who wanted to, everyday people who wanted to be photographed nude to celebrate their body for, you know, their reasons. So when I was 18 in high school, in just started university, um, I was studying cinematography and I really wanted to uh, use those skills and techniques on photography, thinking photography would be easier than videography. Um, because, you know, doing videography constantly and cinematography, you know, it's timely. Um, so I was like, oh, photography, it's a click, boom, done. And um, so that's how I started just, you know, playing around with, with photography. And I wanted to represent the way I saw nudity growing up. So I grew up in a nudist-friendly household, completely non-sexualized, normalized, didn't think anything of it until, you know, 14, 15 realized that, oh, it's not common. Uh, apparently this is really weird. <laughs> so when I hit 18 and became legal age, um, that's what I wanted to do with the photography. I just, you know, didn't think anything of it. I wanted to photograph my friends and, you know, my, my myself and my family or whatever being nude because that was just so normal to me. Started putting it online and then people started reaching out like, I want to be photographed, I want to be photographed. And then, you know, turned to exhibitions and, and you know, kind of like, a, you know, business in a way. Um, so that was a part of it. Bef- when I was just before I moved, I was also before COVID, I was uh, teaching film to disengage students, um, disadvantaged students, which was so fun and so rewarding. Um, I was doing videography, sorry, <laughs> uh, video freelance work, um, editing and yeah, web design. And I had my own studio. So I had art all over the walls and people would come in and we would chat and photograph them either on location or not, and people would buy art. It was just, you know, my own little dream world, really. Um, mm-hmm. It was an incredible space. Um, before I turned 18 and started doing photography, nude photography, um, I had already been doing body work. So I started I started life drawing. Um, I don't know. I think I'm, I must have been like 16 or 15 my mum bought me a fake ID um, so I could go to the pub and do life drawing. Um, I th- oh, my gosh. <clears throat> yeah. I, yeah, I also got a fake ID because I, I ran away to the UK and went backpacking around by myself and I wanted to drink. Um, but, yeah, the ID, the fake ID definitely came in handy because I could go to the RSL. I wasn't rebelling there. I wasn't drinking or anything. I was going there, you know, get home from school, get out of my uniform, go into this space no one knew me there's all retired artists in my small little surf like rural town I'm from pretty much and I would just draw and I would paint and I would put in my headphones and you know no one knew me it was my thing so that's when I started uh doing body work um painting Mm. nudes and you know drawing nudes and so on and I think my mom my mom never pushed it on me she just I think raised the idea of it and I was like I want to do that that is mm. so me. Um, also growing up and being a fat kid um, and my sisters and my mom, very petite. Um, also growing up in a very bikini culture. I think um, 
you know, it all really helped me with my growth and of learning and accepting bodies um, because I never had mm. a problem of appreciating all bodies, but eventually I hit body dysmorphia. And what really saved me was that base of art, that base of life mm. drawing. And, you know, the further I got in and then turned into photography, it was just, it was healing as much as it was for me, as it was for the people, the strangers who became clients. I was, you know, photographing. Um, so yeah, in a big nutshell, all that kind of work I was doing, um, in Australia. Yeah. So why did you move to London? London has been a massive dream of mine for so long. Um, I have footage of me as a kid here dancing around on the tube. Like I've always felt a sense of home here. When I was 15, I traveled with my mom to England and we went to Churro, uh, Cornwall. Yeah. And I saw this lighthouse. Um, we'd just been to St. Ives, um, just right near where you are. And I was 15 and I said, mom, that is my future. I'm going to live in a lighthouse, have an editing suite in the bottom and that is where I'm going to be. And I just have been fixated on it ever since. It, it just felt right. And then a year later, I just was so over school. So I saved up all this money and, and I ran away and I went backpacking around the UK um, from Australia and I made a documentary about it. So, you know, for so long, I've just had this draw to London um, and I don't, I can't really nail it on the head. I think now yeah. being here and living here for nearly nine months, I love it that no one knows anyone. I love mm. that there's also no praise. Um, and everyone is so unique. It's so diverse, you know, d- d- diversified. Is that correct? Mm. D- that, there's such diversity mm. with between, you know, cultures and, you know, religions. And, like, where I'm from, you don't see that. Um, you know, religion is yeah. not even really a topic. Um, let alone multi, you know, many religions. So, yeah. And then, you know, cultures and, and you know, it's a very uh, white community I'm from. So I think I just felt so heard here all along um, mm. because I'm all for that. You know, I love, I love everyone and I love everything and I'm such a curious mind and I love mm. educating myself about anything and everything. So I kind of definitely got bored extremely bored of where I was from and in terms of my career I couldn't really push it much more um because I do such diversity work and body work and um my message is I wanted my message to be bigger and I basically Mm. outgrew Australia um yeah personally I, I got bored and um in terms of a career sense I was like I will be appreciated and and represented so much more in a place that is uh international thinking perhaps to say yeah that makes sense that's so interesting because I I my husband's an Australian musician and um he moved over here for exactly the same reason that in Australia you know there is one radio station and if you don't fit the mold for triple j you pretty much aren't going to get any kind of fame or any kind of following and he had so many muso mates in London that had come for that same reason that like it's a very samey society Mm -hmm. in Australia and you know there's like like we were saying before we came on air when when I moved there I didn't really feel like I fitted in either but it's interesting that you love London for perhaps the reason like the main reason that a lot of people don't Mm. in the sense that you said that you like that no one knows you and you know there is 
a severe lack of community in London. Like there's no community feel because it's just so big. And I think a lot of people move out of it for that reason. Yeah. We've done that and we've come to a really small town in Cornwall and we know everyone and it's we love that. Yeah. So I just think that's super interesting that you, yeah, you love it for those reasons. Well, I think um, where I'm from and just like the more recent years um, of living in Australia, um, don't get me wrong, this is such a blessing that this happened to me. You know, I, I got a lot of praise. Um, I got stopped in the street all the time from people I didn't know, um, you know, b- complimenting me, thank you, thanking me for my online presence, my work. Um, you know, back then I had three Instagram accounts live. Um, they got removed because of, uh, you know, corrupt Instagram rules, basically, thinking I was... Um, Crossing community Yeah, I was going to ask you mass- how many accounts you've had uh, deleted in the past. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that that all got white um, November and I started fresh. And that's when I stopped really posting my nude work. And, you know, now here in London, I haven't done nude work because really COVID's kind of robbed me from that. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, it, 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 don't get me wrong. It was amazing. Um, also growing up from a town, you know, everyone and everything. Like I can't. Mm-hmm. leave the house without seeing someone and that's like I love that because that's home but I just wanted something different um you know my parents were professional sailors and I grew up being homeschooled and traveling a lot with them and what I always loved is you know look, going to different places and um seeing the world in a different sense but mm-hmm. home was always my own little world which is a beautiful thing mm-hmm. to always come back to but I f- eventually fell in love with the bigger world not that little world. Yeah. Um, because, you know, I think when life is so good, um, not to hate on Australia or Australians at all, but, you know, when life is so good, you don't really think out of the box. You don't think yeah. out of the box and you become a little bit small-minded. That's a huge generalisation. But, you know, you do because you probably saw that in Australia. People become maybe a little bit more, you know, everything goes cruisy yeah. laid back which I love but I'm high- yeah because life is good out there like yeah. the quality of life is Inc- so high incredible and it's so laid back but I'm high energy you know I'm high energy and I'm fast-paced and I want to push and I didn't feel like I could push anymore and um, I was you know blessed to get praise for it you know so love people loved me that I pushed and backed and you know it could have gone a completely different way people would be like this chick mm. you know whatever but, um, yeah, definitely for me, I wanted to change that a little bit. I wanted to go to a pub and not know anyone or no one stopped yeah. me. Not saying that it was a problem when people did to anyone, you know, never was. But I don't know. I was ready for to be pushed myself more. Yeah. So I want to talk to you about um, your dancing, mm-hmm. mainly just because I'm a huge fan. <laughs> um but also because of the link with um, that feeling of being able to be strong in your body and use your body and, you know, have complete control over your limbs and feel confident in them. Because recently you shared a pretty hectic health journey online. Um, I read a really moving blog post that you read that you wrote. So I wonder if basically my question is, is is the like dancing and the walkies that you do on Insta, which maybe you can explain to the listeners what walkies is, is that a direct result of what happened to you with your health journey? And would you like to go into that for us? I would love to. 
Um, so yeah, I grew up, you know, an active kid. I danced at the local dance school, right? Um, nothing, nothing professional or extreme or anything. Um, my Eliza, my oldest sister, um, was a full-time ballerina. So, but yeah, I stopped dance like, uh, 13 maybe. Um, I love tap dancing and musical theater. Anyway, stopped. Uh, went into high school and I was faced with, uh, medical problems. And basically that story is a big one. Um, but basically what happened, my body, um, my trust in my body, my stability in my body, my movement, my feeling in my body was removed from me. And what that taught me was the privilege of movement. I had a medical miracle. I don't have any of these problems anymore. And when I was regaining recovery and trust and stability back in my body, I found myself just dancing again. Like the kid in me, like I said earlier, like 2020 taught me to be kid-like again because I think it got mm. rubbed away from me for, you know, seven, eight years that I was dealing in and out of hospital. Um, mm. Parts of me slowly dripping off. Um, so the dancing. Um, April 2019, I got my health back and I just went straight back into my career um, full force, right? Just so hungry, hungry to live. That's what it is. So happy to just and, and, you know, blessed to get a second chance, right? And, you know, November last year, I just started dancing around in my living room, you know, my underwear, you know, it's very normal. Um, I put on uh, just over 60 kilos from uh, medications and so on. So I was a, you know, a fat, proud woman online for sure um, because I rocked what I got. I didn't have a choice in my body um, and I just rocked what I got. Anyway, I just started dancing um, and I did it every day for three weeks. I was just having so much fun by myself and I told one of my friends and they were like, oh, I dare you to record it and put it online. I was like, that is not a dare. Like, that is not a dare. I'll 100% do that. Easy. I did it. Um, And this is also when I just got all my accounts back and I didn't realise how um, happy it would make people, you know, because I did it for me. You know, and I was like, oh, yeah, a bit of fun. And then I realized that it was it was my message in itself. Um, yeah. That movement is such a privilege. And I would not have ever realized that if I was stripped from that privilege. So mm-hmm. I just started doing it and I've done it pretty much every day ever since. So it went from me just like dancing and making videos online to just dancing on my stories and then dancing, uh, which is walkies. Um, so walkies is when I, that started during lockdown, you know, you could have that hour exercise. So I would go mm. and uh, go for a walk. And then one day I was like, I just want to dance. So I basically just walk and I always have music on. And then when I like a song, I would put my phone down on a ledge, boogie, and then keep walking. That's what walkie is. And it just brought me so much joy. And the bonus of it is that it, you know, tends to bring other people joy too, from what I see um, and hear. But um, but what the real thing about movement taught me um, was a healing. So again, in lockdown, I just found myself flowing, which is a term I made up in my head. Um, pretty cool. Sure, it's actually um, somatic therapy or, or, or about... Do you know that terminology? Yeah. Yeah. Somatic is anything that's like of the body. So yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So basically I was just putting on music and I one day, this was like beginning of lockdown, decided to just move to it constantly um, for the duration of the song. Keep in mind, I was, you know, size 22, 
24 when I moved to London. I'm now size 14. So I've lost a lot of weight recently. Whoa. And that's from uh, my body healing. You know, I've got I've got my health mm. back and this is how this is my new body. Um, just to quickly touch on that, moving to a colder climate reduced swelling. And I didn't even know any of this would happen. So when I moved to London, I just stripped weight. Um, mm. which someone who was such a proud online fat woman, uh, you know, it was a bit of an identity crisis. Like, shit, what is going on? My body is removing. Yeah. Like, lockdown, pandemic, like, I've just moved countries. Like, the one thing that I felt so home in is, like, going. But, you know, as you do, you learn to love your present. Um, anyway, so I started doing this thing called flowing, and I just loved it, and I just got addicted to it. And what I realized it was doing, it was healing my PTSD. So I had medical PTSD um, from my journey and, um, uh, you know, medical traumas. And my body remembered more than my brain did. So when I was Mm. dancing and when I do dance and when I do flow, it releases it without me even doing it because I lost a lot of memory. So, Mm. but my body knew about it. My body knew everything Mm. about it. And especially when my body was going through and is going through such a transformation still, um, you know, it's, it's a release for it. Um, so flowing is the, when I just move for a duration of songs, you know, I can do it to an album now, you know, I, I just, I'm addicted to it and I do those flows online. And then I also do check-ins with it. So I ask people how they're going and people can follow along. Um, but yeah, dance has become such a a brilliant thing in my life now. You know, I can't imagine Mm -hmm. not dancing anymore because it's just, it's for me. It's for me and it's a symbol of finding trust and stability back in my body. And I, mm. you know, I've, I've I, in my uh, body confidence, body normalisation, you know, journey, I'm not at a stage of being body positive, you know, I'm just body normal. Um, mm. You know, I just, I just, I love my body and I rock it and I, I don't think I'm being positive for, mm. you know, rocking it. I just think it should be normalised in my mm. state. Um so what I, what was my point with that? Um, um, what I found. Um, what do you think then about this concept of like body positivity that we see so much online? And, you know, I think it's obviously a really positive thing, but I tend to agree with you that body normalization is the goal rather than posting a picture on the internet with the intent purpose of saying this is body positivity but it sort of just seems a little bit trite i think it's body positivity and body normalization are for people at different stages i think they're both equally as important you know i would not have been become body normal like normal uh, normative without being body positive first um i think it's definitely depending on the individual where they are at with their journey so i think they personally think they have a place um you know, but for different audiences. And Mm. the beauty of it, you know, you can tap into whatever one you need. Um, I personally think body positivity is uh, the first step. And when you come so comfortable with that and maybe get over that, you know, you're Mm. just body normative like me. Like I just don't even think about it. You know, people say I'm so body positive online. I'm like, thank you, but I'm just living in my body now. You know, I'm just so thankful for it. I don't see it as an act of like, oh, body positive today. You know what I mean? Um, But that is is a beautiful thing. But I've also worked hard for that. Um, So, yeah, I think they're both very, very important still. Um, But, yeah, so. That whole whole thing about um, 
trauma and the way that we hold trauma in the body is huge, like absolutely huge. There's a lot of literature written about it now, like a fantastic book by um, Gabor Mate called When the Body Says No, which if you haven't read, I massively recommend. And I talk about that a lot with my patients who have been through trauma um, because often I actually can't bring about any healing within them on a physical level without them also working with a CBT therapist or, um, you know, some sort of positive brain retraining because if there is that physical block, like you say, then, you know, the, the kind of healing on a... If there is that mental block and that body block, then healing on a physical level is a lot of the time impossible. So I think that whole concept of like you moving around and flowing and everything is so interesting. And yeah, I definitely feel good when I have a dance. Yeah. Um, And and I actually miss that about like, I don't miss clubbing at all. (laughs) And I don't miss like, you know, that, that I'm not at that stage in my life anymore. But my God, do I miss like being in a room with loads of people and everyone's just moving and like sweaty and the music's super loud mm. and that is just like such a feel good thing for me. Oh. And I used to live in the Caribbean and like, my God, did we dance. Oh, <laughs> I can imagine. That's incredible. Yeah, 100%, so good. 100% like I don't think I, I'm not a clubber or anything like that, but um. Yeah, I think I think dancing just really releases the the inner child in you. I think everyone mm. does. It's like some of the basic things you do when you're a kid. You know, you learn to walk, crawl, yeah. and, and then you boogie. Um, and it's a joyous thing as well, you know. Mm. But what I found with my flows, you know, sometimes I'm sometimes I'm crying my eyes out at the end of it, and mm. um, and I and I love that. The first time it shocked me. I was like, oh my god. I had my anniversary and I and I danced and I just broke down in tears, but it felt amazing. And I was yeah. like, that's when I started looking into it. I was like, what am I actually doing here? Because this feels great and this is good for me. Um, mm. But, you know, I think it's such a healing and nourishing thing. And what I love best about it is I don't need anyone or anything to do it. That's why I do it mm. on the street. You know, I do it in my living room. I do it whenever I can. You know, it, very rarely I think I would actually ever dance at a club. Um because I don't really get myself in that situation, but, you know, alcohol, you know, you're dancing and you're thinking about it. Like for me, dance is when I don't think. Dancing yeah. or just moving my body is is meditative. I can't really do mm. um, meditation or mindfulness. I've got, you know, a, a busy mind, which is so fun, but I found my own meditation within this this way of flowing and dancing. Mm. And that's why I do it because when I dance, I don't think. It's just my body yeah. moving. That's why I can do it all the time now mm. because it's just such a it's self-care for me, you know? Yeah. I'm just jumping in here to tell you about the sponsor of this episode, We Are Samudra. Samudra is a sustainable activewear brand ethically manufactured in London from recycled ocean plastic. When you buy a Samudra piece, you are not only investing into the slow fashion movement, but you're helping marine environments and societies worldwide because Samudra donate 5% of profits to female-focused conservation projects. They've chosen Ocean Swell Organisation, based in Sri Lanka, to be their charity that they donate to after their first year in business. Their pieces are consciously created by women, for women, and they have hand-selected their suppliers to have a female-majority workforce and to match their ethos on sustainability, gender equality and ethics. The founders, Katie and Margot, 
are childhood friends from school, and they only decided to start their brand in the first lockdown. So Samudra is still super new and fresh and needs all the support it can get. They are so passionate about their new brand and getting the word out there, and I'm thrilled to be able to support them in this. All of the pieces double up as swimwear, and I've worn the sports bra a few times in the ocean, as it's actually just super flattering. They also do organic cotton tees with their three wave logo embroidered onto the chest, which are really, really lovely. The girls have kindly set up a 10% off code for listeners of this podcast. Just enter STATE OF MIND in capitals at the checkout, and you can also get free shipping at the moment too. Please do and go check out We Are Samudra on Instagram and their website, wearesamudra.com. So what was the um, what was the effect of because you mentioned in this article that you wrote um, that you were heavily medicated from mm-hmm. a young age and at school. If you don't mind me asking, what was that for? And what was the effect of those drugs on you? Like, how did you feel and how did you feel when you came off them? Yeah. So when I was uh, 13, I started feeling really shit inside um didn't talk about it didn't know what it was you know having a beautiful life around me and so on um and didn't know anything about mental health also having a big personality and I still do big loud and proud so this feeling of feeling you know not confident um and just a deep pit in my stomach was really weird for me um had no education about it when by the time I was 15 I just bottled it all up Um, And I broke down to my sister and I was like, I feel horrendous inside. And because I was such a child and I didn't know anything about it, I thought these these thoughts weren't, you know, as a kid, oh, these thoughts aren't my thoughts. These thoughts are someone else's thoughts. So I said to my sister, Mm -hmm. I have someone in my head, you know, because that's how it felt. It didn't feel like it was me because I didn't believe these thoughts and they kind of, you know, they scared me because I didn't know anything about it. Um, so I went to a psychologist and I was put on antidepressants and was diagnosed with melancholic depression, um, Mm -hmm. which I still to this day, I think that diagnosis, melancholic depression was correct. Do I think medication, um, you know, I held off medication for a year. I did never wanted to do medication ever. Um, but they said, you know, when you go to therapy, um, you know, I didn't talk about it with my friends, my, you know, my parents knew, and my sisters knew, but, um, you know, they say, oh, it's a chemical imbalance. You know, you're going to need medication to fix it. So you eventually mm-hmm. go, okay, mm-hmm. like you're the professor, you're the doctor, I'll listen to you. Um, and normally with antidepressants, it t- you know, it can easily take up to five antidepressants before it works, right? Um, yeah. Keep in mind, I hadn't hit puberty yet. I hit puberty at 17. This is me 15. Mm-hmm. Um which is, I'm genetically late um, from my family. We're all late bloomers. That's not weird. And then, um, yeah, basically a a psychologist and a psychiatrist only saw me when I felt like shit or I only described when I felt like shit because that was the problem, right? Mm -hmm. But they saw my big personality, right, in snippets. So they they, uh, diagnosed me with bipolar, which is where it went wrong. So I'm Mm -hmm. 15 or 16, and uh, they've put me on one antidepressant, didn't work, which is pretty standard. And they've put me now on a mood stabilizer. So an antidepressant, right, lifts you up, just goes like this. Um, and then, sorry, I'm doing hand actions. I probably shouldn't do that. And then a mood stabilizer does this. It, it brings you down and it brings you up and it keeps you in level playing field. Someone who doesn't have bipolar, that is detrimental for your health. 
But again, my family and I had no idea about mental illness, you know, like my, obviously my parents were, you know, very aware and supportive of mental health, but you know, mental bipolar is a genetic disorder as well. So Mm -hmm. we had no one in the family with it. So it was all extremely Mm -hmm. new. And when you're scared and you're you're sad and you're, you're freaking out, you listen to the, these, you know, professors now we're at this professor point. We're not seeing psychiatrists. We're not seeing psychologists. We're seeing professors because no one can really figure this out. So over for years and years, and I just got sicker and sicker and I got in my body, Uh, my body started not working, Um, my limbs, I couldn't feel my limbs at times, massive waves of fogs, I've been told I have bipolar, I'm being put in into, you know, psychiatric wards, Um, and which was an experience in itself, you know, Um, you... Going into these psychiatric wards, I never related to anyone with bipolar. I, I didn't relate yeah. to their symptoms. Um, you know, when they explained episodes, they remembered it. I, I had lost all my memory, you know. But when you're constantly told by these people above you, and I'm a minor, and it was illegal what they did. You, you can't uh, diagnose someone, uh, a minor, with an illness like that, with bipolar disorder. Um, you have to be of age. Um, well, that's at mm. least in Australia. Um, anyway, I didn't relate to bipolar, but, you know, again, you, I could easily just beat myself up. You know, I look back at it like the problem was at the start, you know, and it, it was this illness became man-made, you know, and that's yeah. why it was so hard for anyone to figure out. Um, and, it, you know, it just got, it got worse and worse. It got so physical, more than mental um Mm. you know I would just be walking in collapse um and it was so hard to explain to my university why I kept collapsing um Mm -hmm. you know I'd go up to do a presentation um I tell I could tell them I couldn't feel my legs and they go what's the problem you're like oh I have a mental illness you know they just people look at you you're like right you know but so you feel like people don't believe you you're like what's going wrong um it was a very, uh, a very scary experience. But mm-hmm. there was this one professor who went against everyone, every other, every other opinion, which was, you know, I have bipolar. Um, what that was, uh, that I didn't have a mental illness at all. I had a neurological problem that I would outgrow. But when every other big dog in that room told him to shut up, right. you listen to, you know, the people that are all, you know, three against one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I, if me as a minor or, you know, uh, as a, you know, no, there's no blame here. I have no hate against anyone. But if we went with that guy who thought left wing and knew I had a neurological problem, not a mental illness, and I needed to see a neurologist, then, uh, you know, I would have, my life would have been completely different. Um, Mm. I would have definitely been extremely a lot healthier. Um, and I probably would have had a bit more of a childhood, um, like Mm. not in in a teenage sense. Um, Mm. a lot of this, you know, I kept it all really quiet, um, which made me feel like I had a double life too, but I also kept it quiet one because, you know, mental illness had stigma, but two, I didn't know what to tell people because I didn't believe it and I didn't understand it either. So I also didn't know what to say. Mm. And looking back at that, yeah, that's such another red flag. I should have looked into it, but what I was focusing on was I have this illness for the rest of my life and I just have to suck it up because that's what I was drilled in a way in these therapy sessions was like, you know, I have an illness. My parents were always anti-medication, always anti it. Yeah. I was always anti it. But when you see your child sick, 
and you you know you're not a doctor you're not you know you're not, you're not talking to psychologists here you're talking to professors yeah you listen to them and mm. you know I, it would have been what my parents saw me go through would have been horrendous um even when i came off all my meds um so i'll get to that point so basically after all these years of all these problems and and you know trying to grow up as well drinking boys the whole thing uh you know masses of weight gain my organs were shutting down i hit a point that i knew i was going to die um and that is a horrible life-changing moment especially when you had never actually you know you I'd, I'd never wanted to die and when you're in these in these wards and these places you know it's a very common thing for people to be suicidal mm-hmm. but i never wanted to die and then again you know i easily look back that would should have been a clear sign Mm. because the the reality of mental illness this is quite tough but the reality of mental illness if someone wants to die they will die i never wanted to mm. die so when i realized that my body was giving up on me and i knew in this in my gut feeling that i you know at this point i was on 18 medications daily um mm. you know at massive doses and uh, I'm talking mood stabilizers. I'm talking antidepressants, uh, antipsychotics, uh, epileptic medication. You know, they tried everything because no one could figure it out because what they realized, it was man-made. The mm. whole thing was man, you know, which made me so sick, which, which you know, it's, you look back and you go, well, that makes sense because I was never mm. textbook. It was never textbook. Nothing ever really made sense. They just tried to box me. But what you should, what everyone should really understand is you can't box Imogen Ivy. You can't box me. <laughs> so don't try. So, um, yes, I, and also I wasn't on, um, uh, you know, I wasn't on shelved medication. I wasn't on medication that was put out to the public. I was put on testing medication because I'd already done all the shelf stuff. Nothing had worked, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the effects on my body were massive. Um, and I still, and I forever will be paying for it. You know, my organs are still mm. weak. I've had two kidney infections. I've had a kidney stone this year. I've had a cyst burst. Like, you know, I'm, I look and feel healthy as, as well at the moment. But as I say, as my, I have an inflamed shoulder, um, but you know, my body will forever be, um, recovering. Um, mm-hmm. anyway, so February 19, I decided I woke up and I couldn't feel any of my body. I had no memory, delusional, um, couldn't think, couldn't concentrate, which was at this point, like I was a vegetable, like it got to the point mm-hmm. I was a vegetable and I didn't want to die. And I yelled for my mom and I said mom the one thing we haven't tried is no medication one thing Mm. wow yeah one thing we haven't tried I've done every other treatment every other thing in the book from western medicine yeah and my mom looked me and I said we have to try which was so frowned upon always Always, I was never allowed to, you know, so, no, that would kill you, you know, all this thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I was at this point where I was like, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die unmedicated. Like, I don't, I have, what other option do I have at this point? So I uh, got an okay from one professor. She was this woman. She'd seen me once before and she really didn't know my case. Because that was also the thing. Professors started not to take my case because 
I saw a very dark world to the Western medicine because, um, you know, mm. I, I, they had no answers for me. Um, mm. But this one uh, woman professor looked at me in the eye. She really didn't know me. And she said, do it. Do mm. it. She saw the pain. She saw the hurt. She mm. saw that I was like, you know, a vegetable. Um, yeah, yeah. And that day... I came off 18 medications. I, it wasn't cold turkey, but it was extremely dangerous what we did, I'll be honest. But also she guarded it saying, you know, if you're going to do this, you, you don't know how long, right? So I came off a lot of medication very quickly. I'm not suggesting anyone mm-hmm. to ever do this. This story also should not, you know, uh, scare people for taking medication ever. I had a rare, unique case. I had, mm-hmm. you know, a horror story, really. I got bad luck. Um which I don't see as bad luck now, but yes. So I came off everything and it was the equivalent of coming off a heavy meth addiction of seven years because my body was so used to all these chemicals and also a body that was pre-puberty. Um, mm. Cause you know, I was 15 when I started and I'm now, and I was 22. When, oh no, I was 21 when it ended. Um, or yeah. Anyway, to uh, February, 2019. And um, going through that withdrawals was an experience I wasn't ready for. Um, Mm. My skin shedded. I was extremely happy and extremely sad. I couldn't concentrate. I was, you know, I I didn't sleep for weeks um, because my body was working over time. It was a completely different headspace. One I wasn't prepped for either. One I wasn't, you know, because I also, I didn't have a choice. I was survival mode. I got anxiety mm. for the first time in my life. I got paranoid. I, I At this point, also, um, my parents um, and I decided to not do this in hospital. Uh, I was not comfortable in hospitals anymore. I um, had lost faith, to be honest, in it all. Mm. Um, so I did, it, I did this at home. I did this in my family home um, where I grew up. And so my mum was my nurse. My mum, I didn't let my mum leave the house um for you know at least a month I you know I was I was like a toddler again like that's how it felt um Mm -hmm. which is extremely uh rattling on the brain for sure um also also having no idea if it was going to pay off you steal a riddle every day like am I going to survive am I going to survive which is you know extremely hard thing to say out loud but that is that is definitely how I felt I didn't see visitors I didn't I I turned off everything off I went into, mm-hmm. I will do this and I will get through this and I will have hope. And that is actually when I found faith. I found mm-hmm. religion. I wasn't rela- rela- raised with religion um, or, you know, uh, and I I found hope in and I found comfort in hoping something was bigger than me. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and basically since then, I um, after about seven, six weeks, I was watching a film with mum. And it was the hangover. It was like 5 a.m. And I laughed at one of the jokes. And my mom and I just looked at each other and we just knew that that was the silver lining. I was going to be okay. I had reacted, responded to something someone had said. And I've laughed, you know. I was a part of the world again. And for me, Mm. that's when I knew I was going to live. My life changed dramatically. I have no health problems I look back at this story so much and go, 
did I ever have mental illness? I'm not sure. You know, either way, I know a lot about mental illness now and I'm going to talk about it online. I struggled mm-hmm. with PTSD from that, which, you know, is a part of a, a mental headspace and mental well-being and so on. So I, um, yeah, it's a tough story. It's an extremely tough story. It makes me, you know, uncomfortable to talk about, but it all showed me what is real in life, who is important, what is important. Mm-hmm. And I think that now is such a game changer for me in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Like obviously maturity went through the roof. Um, but, you know, it gave me a drive for life that I know I would not have without it. You know, it showed yeah. me the, the privilege of being able to work full time. I was a very mm-hmm. career driven child extremely at my at a young age like beyond and when it got taken away from me and I couldn't you know uh university at times and stuff was taken away from me I I was so angry so as soon as I got my health back I was like bingo baby but I don't think anyone would really see work as a privilege unless they was Mm -hmm. taken away from them same with your body Mm -hmm. I don't think you know and that's what I'm learning a lot of people don't take their body for privilege our like movement for privilege, which is so fine. I used to be in that headspace too, until it gets taken away from you. And that's what I really learned from the whole thing is that your body and the way you speak to yourself in your mind and things that make you, you like my creative career is what makes me, me, you know, Mm. you hold on to those things and you cut all the bullshit around it. You know, you get Mm. rid of negative people in your life, negative influences because you only have one life and you only have one chance and mm. as painful as this whole story and this journey was for me, I don't regret a thing about it because mm. it taught me the world and the whole spectrum mm. of so much that I know I would not have nearly even touched if it hadn't happened yeah. to me. It's amazing that you've got to that point where you can see it as almost a positive experience or at least something. Oh, that yeah. You know, learn so much from, and I think that shows just immense strength of character on your part. That you know, you you've just turned that around and reframed that in your mind, and actually, yeah, well, insane. What a heavy story. I had a choice. I could hide and cry about it for the rest of my life, or I could mm. use it as fuel. I could use mm. the pain and the blues and the adrenaline and the anger and the and you know the whatever was, you know, you know, a PTSD from it. And I put all of that into bettering my life because it's all about mm-hmm. energy, right? Anger yeah. flipped as love. So I just flipped it. I was like, you know mm-hmm. what? I don't want to mope. I don't want to cry about it. I want to get yeah. on with my life. I got, I got things I want to do. That's what we see. Totally. And that's what we see from you with your online presence is that you are this like, no one would ever think that you'd been through something like that because you are like the happiest the most positive person online I know you get a lot of like really friggin weird comments and you (laughs) you post them and you reply to them and you're just like joyful about it and you're (laughs) it's great it's honestly amazing well because nothing uh, nothing can hurt me anymore you know and that's something I decided I was like nothing can hurt me anymore I'm untouchable and I will that is my choice you know Mm -hmm. and that's why I don't regret any of it, for sure. I wouldn't mm. be half as happy, half as louder than I was as a kid now. 
than I was as a kid if I hadn't had days when I, you know, it was taken away from me. Yeah. And that's the way I decided to, to look at it. Yeah. How has it changed the relationship that you have with the the people in your life, your mum, your sisters? Well, it was extremely quiet, the whole thing, which, you know, did bite me at times. Um, you know, I was uh, my best friend, you know. So when I was in these facilities, I lied to people. Um, you know, I, I told my best friends I was in Europe. I told my best friends that I was up the coast doing video work. It was extremely quiet. Um because again, had no idea really what to say. I wasn't comfortable talking about it. Um, also, it was uh, no no one's problem here, but I was also told not to talk about it. Right. Um, but yeah, that's just what happened. It can't change the past. Um, but when I was 18, um, I started, I told my best friend and he said, he's like, when you called me and you said you were up the coast doing video work, I knew I couldn't hear boats. I knew I heard a hospital bell, but I didn't bring anything up about it. You know what I mean? So, but no one had any idea because I was this happy, loud kid because I didn't Mm -hmm. show it. And basically when I started telling just my close friends, real close friends is because I couldn't show, I couldn't hide it anymore. Especially if I started Mm -hmm. dropping, um, you know, I was at a, at a house party once and I drove and I, my legs collapsed. You know, luckily it was at a party set, so people were like, oh, she's blind drunk. You know, my friends mm. knew I drove, so they just mm-hmm. carried me out. You know, they, it, it got to a point where I couldn't control my body or, mm. you know, anything. So, um, so, but, yeah, it wasn't pu- public knowledge. How did it affect my relationships? Um, well, my mom and I's relationship has always been so incredibly beautiful and unique, you know. She's always been my best friend. Um, obviously a parent, you know, when she needs to be, but she's like, she's my buddy. We, you know, I, we're being homeschooled. I traveled the world with her. I do, I did Avalon, uh, hockey with her. So, um, for, for my mom's relationship, it, it, it didn't make it worse. It made a stronger bond because mm-hmm. she was my nurse in the end. She saw things mothers yeah. should never see. She saw her child, you know dying yeah yeah. so it and she kept her she kept it together you know we talk about it now she goes Amy I was petrified absolutely Mm. petrified and I had no idea well I you know oh I also had no brain (laughs) I was you know whatever but she she would never have shown that to me because she knew I you know lost was losing hope with all Mm -hmm. so with my mum 100% um it's just gotten better. You know, my mom and I, you know, if we're, my mom always, my mom and I always laugh, like, we can get through that bitch. Like, I call my mom bitch. Yeah. Like, hey, bitch. Like, we call each other, like, you know, she goes, hey, hot stuff. Like, I talk to her like one of my best friends. Like, she is one of my best friends, you know. She's the yeah. first person I tell if I have sex. She's also, like, but we have always had that relationship. I grew up mm-hmm. in an extremely open, communi- um, you know, big communication household and I think this whole journey would have been a completely different story if I didn't have such a open and loving parents my dad mm-hmm. is not really much of a talker um but he showed love in many ways like he would sit with me in the hospital he would just come and just sit there with me and know I was there you know um 
and you know give me love and and, and you know just just uh, more of a presence whereas my mum won't shut up she'll keep talking and you know that's yeah, yeah. They, they just show love differently my parents are together completely opposite people but they're you know they're my buddies and mm. you know it definitely just made our relationship stronger my dad you know it broke my dad 100 percent. it broke you know it broke the my mom and my dad they were the two people who saw it my dad actually mm-hmm. had to go to work um when i was in recovery um but you know he was calling my mom constantly which i know now um mm-hmm. and stuff but my mom is the one who saw it all uh, she came to mm-hmm. all the, um, you know, I, when I, when I became an adult, I had a choice if my parents could come into the room or if they could know everything from a day mm-hmm. dot, I said, my family can know anything and everything. I just want to get better here. You know, there was no mm-hmm. secrets. I was like, let my mom know, like, I need, I want to get better here. That was always my motive. Um, so my relationship with my parents, yeah, just got stronger. The, the amount of yeah. respect they have more for me, uh, or not more, but like, it just grew um and and love and you know when you when you go through struggle with people there's a chance of it breaking or building and it definitely built with my parents Eliza my older sister was away um living here in London for you know all of it pretty much but she knew about it and when she was in Sydney and she could she would visit me in hospital um because I didn't have Mm -hmm. friends as visitors um because they didn't know about it or, you know, I didn't want to see them or whatever. I, did, I didn't, I basically never wanted to scare anyone um, because mm. it scared me. That's why I didn't show it to people as well. You know, I didn't want my friends to come in and see me in hospital because I knew they would be scared because I was scared. Yeah. You know, I didn't know what to say yeah. either. I didn't want to uh, make anyone sad, really. That's just the empath mm-hmm. I am. Lucy, my middle sister, was really great. She was Sydney-based. She and her boyfriend would always come and visit um, and just generally be a rock for me in so many ways. Our relationship has changed um, since me getting my health back. Um, we've had struggles, for sure. But it's, it's you know, it's back on the mend and, it, and, it, and it's a, a beautiful form again. But I think we definitely, you know, she had to heal because what she saw me mm. go through was you know traumatizing enough for her as well so yeah. we've both come out of it as a you know a stronger more a better friendship for sure but yeah you know when when big things happen you know and you love someone so much and especially in our family you know blood is more than love um yeah it's 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 horrifying when things don't go wrong so it's mm. very understandable why that happened with uh my middle sister um but you know we can't we came out on top Mm, so yeah and and then my close my friends haven't really changed um my bed my buddies are my buddies and they've been my buddies all the time and you know I they I talk about it now I um because Mm. I didn't really keep them in they saw me in parts um but because I shut it all out um and was really aloof with it all no one really knew what was up. Yeah. Now when I talk about it, they're like, holy shit. And I did that to protect them. Mm -hmm. And I did that because I also didn't want to talk about it um, Mm -hmm. or how to. But, you know, now they, now they, you know, I just, I try to use my advice to an advantage, you know, when something, I'm like the therapist of my friends. And I love that because I can be. 
Um, but yeah, my friends, my friends haven't changed. I still love me just as much. It's probably got us stronger. And it's also, it made me realize who turns up, who turns up mm-hmm. when you do call. Um, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I, you know, I was just blessed that it was everyone that I thought it would be for sure. Great. Yeah. So here's a frivolous question for you. Go for What's it. the weirdest thing that anyone's ever said to you online? Oh, golly. Uh, the classic one I get pretty much daily is um, what's my rate as th- p- presuming I'm a sex worker. <laughs> um, oh God! And and in that same category, last year I had in three days in a row, I had uh, a guy I knew, not that well, and like you know. Uh, like I'll happily talk about sex, but like we had never had that relationship kind of thing. He he reached out to me and was asking if I would want to have sex with him and his friends with benefits, and I said sorry, I'm I'm uh, straight, so I can't I can't can't even sleep with a woman <laughs> if I wanted to. You <laughs> know, like I just yeah. So I said no, sorry. The next day I had someone online saying, hey, do you want to have a threesome? And I said no, like <laughs> again with a, a woman and a male. I was like, no, thank you. And then the third day, like this happened in three days in a row, and I had never really got the whole threesome thing before. I'd got the sex worker thing, but this was like a bit wild. The third day, I'm going to my coffee shop in Coogee, where you spent your time in Australia, and you know I I talk to this barista every day, right? She is quite a tough, you know, go-getting woman, and her husband, you know, is in in and out of the cafe. And she whispers to me, was like, hey, um, any chance you would consider doing a threesome? <laughs> At that point, I'm like, I've had it twice online and once in person. And I just went like, do I scream threesome energy? Like, what is going on? <laughs> like, I've never, like, you know, I'm like, for me, sex is, is very intimate and very private. And um, yes, I, I normalize it online and I talk about it online because I think it should be normal. But my actual experience with it is very, you know, private because I, and, you know, I don't talk Mm -hmm. about my love life online because it's for me. Um, So I always Mm -hmm. find it so funny when people think uh, that I maybe have a crazy sex life or like, um, you know, or, you know, a sex worker. I have the biggest respect for sex workers. Like, I think it's the toughest job in the world. So I don't see it as a negative when people ask me my rates. I just forward it on to people that I know mm-hmm. do the work um, and give their, like, links and stuff and their PayPals and, you know, their bank accounts and stuff. Um, so I don't see it as a negative at all. Um, so that, yeah, but the threesome thing, three in a row, I was like, is this a sign that I should probably have sex? Like, what is going on? Um <laughs> Because, oh, that's what also happened when I lost my, when I, you know, came off all the medications. I lost my sex drive for, a, like, a year. Yeah. Um, you know, from someone who was, you know, had to have, you know, having sex, you know, masturbation, all that stuff. I was, it was quite weird to not have anything, you know, have no desire. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I was worried it wasn't going to come back. But, yeah, when I got those three threesome calls, it was in that year of nothing, of no uh, hormones or sex drive. So I was like, is this a sign I should have sex? Like, what's going on? Um, that's pretty weird. Um, what else is something quite funny? Oh, I get, like, I get not a lot of hate. I get a little hate. I don't even see it as hate. But I've got some, like, hate essays before, but I just find it hilarious. And I honestly look at it now. I'm like, oh, content, ammo, fun. I can laugh at this online and yeah, show women yeah. or anyone who gets bullying harassment how to do it. You beat them. Yeah. You kill them with kindness. Um 
So I actually kind of like it, but um, I don't think many content creators would say that. But honestly, it doesn't doesn't affect me. Um, I can't That's the of, way to be, isn't it? Yeah, got to be resilient. Yeah, I just don't have time for it. Um, to, or time to like bottle it. I'm like, I will. I don't care of anyone's opinion. I care how people feel. I don't care of anyone's opinion of me. I don't seek validation. I don't care of anyone's validation. You know, even the closest people in my life, I care how they feel. If they think I'm at harm or doing something wrong in my life, I would definitely listen. But if you are definitely mm-hmm. a stranger and don't know me from bar or soap, you are the last thing in the world that I'm going to listen to or care of your opinion because I don't mm-hmm. want to seek I, like, I don't seek validation. It's also why I struggle taking compliments because for so long I haven't seeked approval, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So yeah, 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 definitely. I can't think of the funniest, but yeah, there's like you know there's weird things, but this, I don't this, know. Well, My- to be honest, the sex worker one is a great one, so we'll go with that. Yes. Um, <laughs> I I could talk to you all day. Um, <laughs> I but- know we should probably wrap it. Yeah. Um, So let me ask you the final question that I ask all my guests. Uh, What does state of mind mean to you? My relationship with myself and how I speak to myself and my relationship with my whole and how to stay present. For sure. I think it's all about the dialogue in the way you think of yourself, believe in yourself and you are yourself for sure. Yeah. Imogen Ivy, you are an absolute badass and thank you so 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 much for talking to me today um how can everyone find you online give us your my username is at imogen f-k-i-n-g-i-v that's at imogen fucking ivy that's spelled i-m-o-g-e-n-f-k-i-n-g-i-v-y amazing and yeah for now that's where you'll find me you'll help you'll see there um links to my website and um so on other accounts incredible Amazing. Thank you so much. I think this episode Thank will have touched you. so many people. <laughs> oh, have hope, my darlings. Lots of love. Thank you so much for having me. Bye. Thank you so much again for tuning in to State of Mind. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please don't forget to leave a review and subscribe as that really helps me get the podcast into more people's ears. More information about me can be found on my website, gracekingswell.com or over on Instagram. And don't forget to check out wearesamudra.com for 10% off their sustainable activewear. Bye-bye.